You're listening to The Dude Grow Show, coming straight out of Denver, Colorado, bringing you marijuana grow knowledge, news, and culture. At the tone, the time will be 4.20. Exactly. Yo, what's happening, DGC? This is Hash Assassin in the flesh or through the cables. But um, the dude and Scotty Real have gotten lost, I guess you could say, at Canacon. Uh, so I'm just recording this little intro and we're going to do um, the best of Drop in Science. And everybody will be back on Monday. So enjoy the show. Peace. All right, guys, we're back back we're back to drop some science here uh we got jacob from Growmore. how you doing jacob hey i'm doing pretty well guys how are you all right excellent excellent what are we gonna what, what kind of science are we gonna drop today well i'm thinking due to the popularity and effectiveness of recharge um kind of get into a little bit of the science behind beneficial bacteria and fungi how those microbes work in conjunction with, uh, you know, pathogen control and prevention and maybe throw in a little bit uh, of science and how those beneficials interact with some of the other liquids that uh, you guys use and other products that are out there in the market. I love it because, I mean, I know that these beneficials work. I, you know, I can't really understand or completely comprehend the deep science of, of what they're actually doing inside the soil, but I'll be damned if I know they work, man, so... Well, I mean, it's an extremely complex subject, just beneficial microbe science in general. Yeah, that's why I, I try not I'll, to pretend that I understand it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, a lot of times I think the oversimplification of it with those in the hydro industry actually gets to the bare bones of what's really important about it. And understanding the complex matter isn't really great, but uh, um, if you can understand different growing methodologies with beneficial microbes and where, you know, pH, uh, nutrient levels, bioavailability of nutrients are totally different um, across different soils and how the microbes actually hone them in and create an environment that brings them in, an, in, in a value uh, that's consistent is, is really what's important. You know? Yeah, I mean, I am, I mean, I've always heard the rap on microbes for years and years back is, oh, they don't play well with chemical fertilizers. As soon as you put salt on, they, they kill the microbes or at least make them dormant. How, let's well, start. Let's Scotty start. Said there. You're a fan of trichoderma too, so I'd like to hear about some, yeah, some stuff on trichoderma because we oh, definitely yeah. have trichoderma and recharge, and I, I'm a fan too, but I'd like to know more about it. Uh, and the favorite thing on trichoderma is to have people, you know, that you know that really just go to the the forums say, oh, trichoderma and mycorrhizae, man, they outcompete each other, man. You, you can't use trichoderma; it's no good. Elaine Ingham says so, man. <laughs> to be honest, I mean. 
there's some truth to some arguments when you talk about microbial populations and who's trying to dominate one over the other. But typically, right. you find beneficial, you know, bacillus bacterial strains, spores will will overtake. And it's not that they overtake anything. It's just how fast do they reproduce and colonate uh, environment. And unfortunately, what we found um, through a lot of researches is that the beneficial bacteria bacillus-based products end up uh, uh, outcompete some of the other fungal spore um, uh, re- reproduction and population growth um, faster. And so a lot of times they're not necessarily taking them out. They're just colonizing at such a fast rate and in, in such a greater volume that sometimes the trichoderma kind of get, um, you know, set aside, which is why I'll always say using trichoderma uh, mycorrhizal-based inoculants initially when they can colonize and grow on the roots as they develop uh, is the most efficient application of it. And then later on inoculating with uh, bacteria. So I won't name any names for companies out there um, specifically, but there are some products, beneficial microbes that combine both the bacillus and the uh, fungal spores. And again, to each his own, it's going to make, it's, it's better than not using it. However, the way that you have it going on with the recharge, separating the trichoderma with the mycorrhiza together and initially inoculating with that, bring in the bacillus later and then it's, it's more. But we can get a little bit more into how trichoderma um, is a free living fungi and, and how they kind of work in the root zone. And again, you know, Pythium, Phytophthora, all these root mold um, fungal pathogens are and the root disease are almost not necessarily alleviated, but they're under control much more when using these microbes. So. Yeah, I, I just had to say it's like the no vacancy sign is hung out. You know, there's just no room for them to get started, man. Where's your soundboard, Scotty? Come on, we gotta we gotta hit up some drop in science here. Do you have that going Look, yet? This is a very <laughs> serious conversation here. Anytime I hang with Jake, I, I gotta do what I can. I don't even smoke bong hits beforehand, man. Gotta, oh man. I, I gotta do what I can to hang on here and understand, man. Right. Homie drops the science and talks in a language that uh I, I get one out of every four or five words, man. You know? also, it's about to be one it's gonna be one twenty in about four minutes, so it will be four twenty somewhere. <laughs> Damn straight, man. <laughs> Four right. minutes, people. Hey, if you hear bubbling going on in the background, uh, I, I plead the fifth, man. <laughs> All right, man. So I, I'd like to just let you talk, if I could, Jake. Man, it seems like you've definitely got a, a, a firm understanding and an opinion on on uh, adding, you know, the beneficials uh, with, you know, I mean, what you're doing. You're, you're you're doing a synthetic nutrient over there. So I'd love to hear your take on on how they work together. Well, you know, at Growmore too, you know, we, we, we do incorporate some of our liquid line, like the Avalanche that you promote and the Jumpstart. They're sure. synthetic and organic blend, they're blends in my mind. And essentially, we're trying to put back, and this leads into the beneficials, into a more inert, soilless media. We'll just use cocoa to get an environment that is more recreated that would be a nature found, right? Sure. So essentially, you know, you want to include some organics and some synthetics. Uh, some people can go all organic. It's more for a reason for their philosophy, and there's nothing wrong with that. Some people just have uh, uh, certain genetics that respond better to different sorts of feeds, and, and I get that. So whether or not that's right or wrong, we're going to get into another conversation about organics and synthetics and heavy metal counts in another, uh, in another drop in science segment in a week or two. But I want to come back to um, essentially – uh, you know the microbes and essentially how many you know biocontrol agents are going to perform when when used effectively so interject anytime you want guys and i'm just going to kind of ramble off and, and get some, some right. info out there so dropping signs like galileo dropped an orange man let's do it 
There you go. Soundboard on All the right. fly. Well, you know, what's obviously really clear about beneficial microbes, you, you talk in, 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 in ag and in agronomy, botanists will say that obviously the use of beneficial microbes are main control, bacillus thuringiensis, you know, BT, been used for years in controlling pathogens, right? They want to get rid of pythium, they want to get rid of phytophthora, they want to get rid of fusarium, um, and these are all root diseases. So, I'd say, again, getting back to what you said, with, when used in combination with uh, the recharge and, and, and a carbohydrate-based source like a kelp, you know, they got really, really white, healthy roots. Well, of course they are because they're eradicating and helping to control all those, you know, um, the, the pathogens controls. So, uh, beyond just controlling those pathogens, the use of beneficial microbes um, also enhances yields through hormone stimulation, enzyme production, and other mechanisms. You know, um, the same can't be said if you're using sterilization methods such as uh, the hydrogen peroxide or the oxygen rush or other products relating to that. Right. Uh, anyone using UV light cleaners for their water, you know, they're killing all these things. Yeah, so, that's a totally different philosophy, man. Old school, man. Old school. So, I mean, it's generally agreed that, uh, you know, these, these inoculants control diseases more stably under better controllable conditions than in the open field, which is why it's so hard to recreate an environment in an, a 2,000-acre plot using beneficial microbes than it is in an indoor garden or a greenhouse setup or somewhere where you have uh, much more control. And again, we obviously have to look at the life cycle of the plants most of your you know, growers are growing, and these being a very short life cycle annual need to get all the help they can get. Um, yes, especially when we're pushing the life cycle that's normally nine months outside into three months inside. You know, so we're talking about a, a 30% length of time for that the plant really wants to grow. So again, getting back to it needs a lot of help. Um, so the, the hydroponic systems are going to offer a real unique environment for controlling pathogens since a lot of these, these, these things can be managed um, to favor these friendly microorganisms over these pathogenic ones. And that's so just, to, just to clarify real quick, you, you said hydroponic, and I'm thinking yeah. you're including cocoa in there, right? Yeah, you know, that's kind of the term I think that gets thrown around a little too loosely, and I've, I've fallen into that trap, and you just caught me right there. You know, anytime I use the word hydroponic um, in the industry, most people want to include soilless medias, even when you're using uh, gravel or hydrogen, um, ebb and flow systems, or just a drip system in a Beto bucket. Right. Um, you know, straight perlite, a lot of guys are doing, um, but including cocoa with the soilless media. So, again, hydroponics working with water. Um, most growers that are growing outside, a lot of them use a sunshine number four mix or a sure. peat based mix. I mean, these are all not, this is, these aren't soil. You know, so it's hard to say, oh, I'm growing this, you know, soil growing. And again, this is beneficial across the board um, of, uh, of, of all different kinds of medias. So again, using hydroponics in the term of, of, you know, growing Jamaican tomatoes is just easier when you deal with the ag industry that, uh, you know, kind of doesn't understand it. So, all right. Again. Okay. But, but, uh, so we're talking, when we talk hydroponics, so we say hydroponics slash soilless, we can assume that in our heads. Yes, yes, exactly. Anytime I say the word hydroponic, you, I'm just using that for specific content regarding soilless media, even including soil at this point. But a lot of guys, like I said, aren't using just, you know, uh, an ocean forest or and anything. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're mixing it up, whether they're using pro mix or, or sunshine number four. Again, these aren't really soils. I still consider it more of a hydroponic media because of its water retention, aeration right. capacity. And again, 
we're putting them in containers and it's not natural open soil in ground, you know? So very few people are planting in the ground and growing in soil. So I would say even any kind of container gardening, it falls into this hydroponic because we're controlling the feed and we're controlling what's happening within this five gallon container. Right. Um, Are you taking a smoke break, Scotty, real quick? You sounded short of breath there. I just noticed it was, no, I'm sorry. That was the soundboard. I got the soundboard going. Cool. Cool. All right, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't really want to get too deep into them again, but we talk about, um, you know, pythium. Uh, again, it's a generic name for describing a large number of these water molds and damping off fungi, right? So, and, pythium and these fungal spores you get a lot initially when you transplant, um, not so much towards, uh, you know, the very end of your life cycle. But these are the things that the, the pythium to us looks like you go in one day and one of your plants looks like crap. You come back the next day and it's dead. Come back the next day if you're in like a deep water culture, any kind of recirculating system, and your whole crop is gone. Just everything's dead. That's how fast something like pythium you know, wipes out a crop. So to have an insurance policy or to make sure you don't have it is absolutely, you know, just absolutely imperative. Yeah, pythium, that's great. Crop failure is the number one thing I hear from a lot of guys in Colorado that I consult with doing large commercial grows. And essentially, a lot of that has to do with these pathogenic fungal spores. And not necessarily pythium as much, maybe as phytophthora. Uh, that's a real aggressive plant pathogen. Pythium, um, when I use the word pythium, I'm kind of describing, uh, I'll describe many rhizosphere pathogens, which is like root, root you know, pathogens as pythiums. So, um it's a little bit easier for me instead of saying, you know, Fusarium oxysporum, you just say Fusarium, you know, because these are all the genus and species of of different things. These are all just basic genus stuff. Sure. Uh, I thought that Fusarium out out of my palm tree and bamboo farm, man. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a common soil fungus, and it can become a a, a pathogen and cause of a wide variety of these wilt diseases, you know, so you call them Fusarium wilts. So that's the thing. You're like, what the hell is wrong with my plant? It's just like, I've watered it yesterday. It looks like it's completely, you know, devoid of all this water. So you get wilting, you get yellowing of leaves, chlorosis, you get premature leaf drop, uh, stunting, damping off, and this all happens pretty quick. But again, phytophthora happens really fast. And these are all things that recharge beneficials in in combination with other... um, um, inoculants are going to help avoid. Yeah, right? phytophthora so, is like the Ebola of plants, man. Garden, <laughs> dude, man. Li- dude, literally meaning plant destroyer. Literally. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I never see, when I used to run um, water farms and deep water culture and systems that I ran more sterile than not, um, I would have that sometimes, like Scotty was saying. I Like, all of a sudden, I'd go in and then, bam, the next light cycle, like, three plants are just totally dead. And it's like, how does mm-hmm. that happen so quick? Something viral, usually that I could not put my finger on in the system or the water. Bacterial, um, man. I never see it, though, in my soil, soilless mixes, my container gardening. And, I mean, that's, I'm assuming wise because I'm always inoculating now. I'm always using as much, you know, soil beneficial bacteria, microbes I can. So, it's like you said, the no vacancy signs up. So, I could point my finger at it more. You could also see your roots really well in hydro systems. Mm-hmm. You just look at them and know it's kind of hard sometimes in uh, your soilless mixes, but... Yeah, I definitely think that was part of the issue in the sense there's nothing. When something bad shows up, it parties. Oh, man. You know, that's a great the, the good point you just made. It's like trying to go, you know, sterilization argument. You know, I, uh, I was just spent some time in the hospital, and you see how much a hospital tries to contain and make an environment very sterile, but that's not even 100% foolproof all the time either. So, you know, it's almost better to, in an environment where you know, 
you know, there's all these spores blowing around, you're breathing them in and out, uh, it's impossible to avoid it. And so trying to create an media, an environment that's completely sterile is, uh, I'll just say it's idiotic because it's never attainable. There's always going to be something. So instead of, like you said, you know, trying to shut the party down, there's always going to be that last guy that's like, no, I'm going to stick around, I'm not leaving yet. You know what, <laughs> keep that party going until friggin' 24-7. You know what I'm saying? Just invite as many beneficials as you can to it, right. and then you don't have to worry about it because trying to get rid of everybody at the end of the day it's, it's almost an impossible task yeah my cousin's coming in an hour homie yeah <laughs> <man>. <laughs> all right man keep it on man come on so um okay obviously we just talked a little bit about water molds uh we talked about some soil funguses the fusarium you had with the you know, uh, your, your bamboo trees sure um you know, Pythium is the most common root disease found in hydroponics. Um, they attack the root system and severely limit the plant's ability to uptake nutrients or any kind of food, which ultimately means unhealthy crop and a low yield. Not good when you are, you know, growing. So usually you see a brown root system. That's how you notice it. Their roots aren't very healthy and white. Um, musty smell as the root system kind of decays. Now there's normal die off for roots that are close to what we call the drip zone right around the base where the root, uh, after let's say your rock wool cube, you transplant into a cocoa, um, container and you kind of see the roots, the roots are going to die off and the root tips at the bottom of your pot, um, are going to obviously be where they're, they're picking up and feeding. So normal breaking down of roots as the plant ages and progresses is normal. What you don't want to see is, uh, you know, that happening immediately right away. So, um, you know, again, if your crop's healthy and you're inoculating a lot, the pythium and these fungal spores have a harder time latching on. Uh, you know, they take hold of the weak stress crop much more easily, just like humans. When you have an infant and elderly people, they're much more susceptible to the flu virus because their bodies can't kind of fight it off. So again, if you are starting with a healthy crop and you're, you know, of of, of good health and, and taking your supplements and, and not putting yourself in that kind of arena, you know, you're, you're much easier to fight that off. Um, yeah, it sure does yeah, make you, sense, man. Yeah, you but, see it um, everywhere in nature. You just look at nature. I mean, it's how it, how it works, to, the survival of the fittest, and when something bad comes, you should be healthy to handle it. So. Mm -hmm. So again, pythium are water molds. So untreated water, this is for growers that are maybe doing depot scenes or that are just like, you know, finding their stream or dam water and uh, sometimes even like well water. Um, they're high-risk products because of these water molds in it. So if you're going to use that, you've got to sterilize it prior to use. And um, again, rainwater too should really be treated because of the likelihood of it collecting like windblown soil and all these contaminants, again, that are blowing all the way around. So... How do we control these things? The few main strategies are just increasing uh, the level by addition of these antagonistic microorganisms. And again, these are the fighters of them that we're talking about. Um, using a mix of these microorganisms that, uh, that kind of complement what media you're using. And then again, amending the substrates and nutrients to, to favor the development of these. So because we talk again about controlling the environment and having a unique situation where we can have more control over the pathogens since these things can be, can be uh, managed more easily. Um, we're, we're going to be able to prevent all that harmful, that harmful damage to the crop. So, um, you know, I think we'll, we'll talk about it real quick. So competition for nutrients, people say, Oh, don't use that because these certain nutrients are killing off. Uh, you know, your beneficials is not helping. Yeah, I always hear that, man. Well, you know, um, 
I always hear salt, for, yeah. salt kills, you know? I always hear salt kills. Uh, I mean, certainly it, it... Anyway, I'll let you go. Well, no, I mean, it's like that argument. I was just talking to someone today that did an organic farm and a community-supported ag, a CSA, and it's almost like, you know, the monopotassium phosphate that people are saying is a synthetic salt nutrient is all mined from the ground. And at the end of the day, we'll just use nitrogen. If you're using blood meal and uh, microorganisms and the over time is being broken down, that element of N uh, that's being taken up into the root is the same element of and nit- that the nitrate's converted into the ground when you water with it that's being taken up by the plant. So the root zone doesn't recognize whether something's organic and synthetic, which we'll you know talk about in another conversation. Right. But, um, you know, the salt isn't necessarily killing them either. Uh, you know, just the concentration of EC, electrical conductivity, being so high, it's just there's a frequency that they're not really feeling. Um, but, again... These microorganisms are sharing the same uh, space uh, and ecological niche and having the same physiological requirements and resources are limited. So they got to feed just like anything else, which is why carbohydrates are so important to them. Now, assuming your root zone is trying to take up these carbohydrates, well, again, your microorganisms also want to take up and feed off these carbohydrates. Um, so, again, talking about organic versus the base of everything is just carbon. So competition for the nutrients, especially for carbon, is common in, all, you know, in, in the soils and other media right. and uh, really inhibits the fungal spore germination when there's a lot of competition going on. So, you know, competition for nutrients is one of the many modes of action of these many beneficial micros. Um, so... We talk about, uh, I'm just trying to think where to go from here, really. Well, I can um, tell you, what What about, I mean, in a nutshell, I don't know if you answered it fully directly, but so is it worth it? Um, I mean, I'm going to say I would think yes when you're using whatever, new chemical two-part out there, using uh, GH's three-part or whatever to spend you know, more three part. Come grow on, more man. three part, dude. Hey, hey you got to yeah. send us some of that. We got a bunch of people that want to try that grow more three part, man. So I would definitely. Oh, want to okay, yeah, it works. I'll get I'll get you some of that. But I'm sorry, dude. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, just I mean, is it still totally worth using uh, beneficial inoculants when you're in everything else? Let's say in your regimen, you use a bloom booster, a high phosphorus bloom booster. You use chemical based nutrients. You use chemical additives. Uh, is it still worth your money to be inoculating with beneficial microbes? All right. Well, you know, because not everybody out there uses grow more nutrients and I can't really attest to the, we're going to talk a little bit about the, you bring up a great point. So uh, there's a bunch of different phosphorus sources, right? There's, um, you know, uh, aluminum phosphate, um, phosphates that are uh, non-available, non-bioavailable phosphates um, in an organic, and in organic form um, and essentially depending on what the fertilizer you're using may have some of these really uh, poorly soluble phosphorus sources. Um, so another really key function of these fungal spores is they increase the uptake of this poorly soluble pea sources, right? So um, the fungal spore is going to colonize the root cortex of this plant, and then the fungi are able to acquire this organic carbon as food to build the infrastructure for the phosphorus uptake and then transporting it into the plant, right? And so the mycorrhizal system is able to take up that phosphorus more efficiently and transport it over longer distances than the plant root system, overcoming the phosphorus depletion in soil. So are those reasons why, is it safe to say, I always tell people if you're inoculating, uh, you can get away with 
not a lot, and you got to see how hungry your plant is. But I feel like I use less nutrient with a, a inoculated soil because more of it's becoming available to the plant through all the work that's going on. I mean, is that kind of correct exactly. in a nutshell? That, that, that's very that's that's very correct in a nutshell. And then we talked a little bit about pea. I'll touch on it again. Why also you got to watch it with uh, with nitrogen because the fungal spores also acquire a substantial quantity of nitrogen from organic sources and play a real important role in the nitrogen cycle. So you know um, the the inorganic nitrogen that's released from you know, decomposing organic matter before the roots can acquire it, right. pass some of this onto the plants as uh, amino acid arginine, right? And additionally, um, ammonium nitrate. There's a, a plant ammonium transporter that is mycorrhiza specific and preferentially activated um, in cells has been discovered. So, you know, they're, they're finding now that the nitrogen transfer to the plant in this way is operating in a similar manner to the phosphorus uh, transfer. So when you talk about it this way, shit, the... Uh, fungi sounds pretty impressive so you know this is all good you can pull back again the benefits of the fungi are greatest in systems where the inputs of phosphorus are low right so heavy usage of phosphorus can inhibit the colonization and growth of it and as the soil phosphorus levels you know available to the plant increases the amount of phosphorus also increases in the plant tissues and the carbon drain on the plant by the fungi symbiosis becomes non-beneficial to the plant so again with that being said we obviously just talked about not having to use as much phosphorus and nitrogen because the plant's taking up more of it, which is totally true. Of course, when you get later on and you're using these bloom boosters like a 05030, like a Hula Bloom, you're using a Cool Bloom, you're using a uh, Beastie Blooms, you're using right. a Moab, anything like that, of course, it's going to inhibit that mycorrhizal colonization and growth, which is why, again, transplanting, inoculating your plants very early on and veg through like week four or five is really important before those heavy blasts of phosphorus come in. Because once once the uh, mycorrhizal spores made root zone contact, it's being carried into that super highway of the plant and it's dragging along with it. Um, again, the phosphorus can just inhibit the growth. It doesn't stop the growth. It just, uh, you know, it doesn't make it around, make it as great and, and as easy to colonize. Right. Well, at that point in your plant's life cycle, it's already done its job. It's already inoculated. It's already colonized as much as it can. So it doesn't necessarily matter as much. Um, yep. Let that myco grow along with your root systems. Get it on where your roots are small. It's got a little bit of a, a surface area to cover and then you, it inoculates. And as your roots grow, that myco's growing right on in with it, man. And I definitely think in, in, in hydroponics and, you know, Jamaican tomato growing, as they call it, in general, there's, in the industry, there's an overabundance played and, and an overimportance played on the pea element. You know, I feel like potassium later on in flowering is much more beneficial to overall yield and flower quality than phosphorus is. But it's just this this mindset in the industry, like, oh, I've got to use a zero fifty thirty, or I need like a you know a one eight five liquid mid stage bloom stimulant, or I need a zero ten ten. You know right. what I mean? So sure. you know that, that that's just kind of what we deal with, and you know, again dealing with a lot of people in ag you try to tell them hey you shouldn't be using xyz well i'm going to use it because my daddy used it and my grandpa used it and just worked for them and it works for me <laughs> sure. it's like all right that's good so when you learn how to grow and your 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 you know don juan the grower says hey this is your feed schedule this is that this you know and it works for you most likely you're going to continue to use that and really not hear anything anyone else says because yeah you know it works for me well again with the price of produce going down and the you know, ability to uh, compete, you know, you got to really pay attention to what your inputs are because of the costs. And uh, that that's kind of where where a lot of people 
using mycorrhizal inoculants, uh, using uh, amino acid or certain chelates um, are going to help fulvic acids because you're not going to have to use as much nutrients either that's going to be available to the plant, right? Yeah, it's exactly how I learned these tricks, man. You know, with, with, the, with the recharges through my bamboo farm, man, through trying not to buy, you know, eight, nine pallets of fertilizer at a time, man. Now, what so about... Guess, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, please. I was what just going to yeah, okay, you go, Brett. So a base, a base nutrient. Um, I know you mentioned the three part. Now, does Grow More have anything else if you don't want to use a, like a more that's just like a you know quality chemical based nutrient? I guess I'll categorize it as. Do you guys have any organic, organic synthetic mixes or any other base nutrients? Yeah, you know, we have a really great, and what a lot of guys in Colorado specifically that are having issues with buying all these liquids, but, you know, we're basically paying for, for water in a certain capacity. You know, certain things okay. have to be reacted with each other to be soluble, tested, and make sure that they're compatible. You know, I used to work on a hydroponic lettuce uh, facility and we had few stock tanks. So I was mixing calcium nit, you know, stock A and stock B tank and then an acidifying tank for, for the third tank. So, you know, I'm mixing all these raw salts, you know, calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate, magnesium sulfate, monopotassium, uh, mono, yeah, monopotassium phosphate, um, all these sorts of things, right? Well, trying to mix your own salts can get kind of tricky. And again, if you want to create a 0 10 10, um, maxi, not maxi plex, I can't think of what the name is. Is Seagro uh, dry organic? Seagro is exactly what I was going to suggest. So, yes, essentially, Seagro is a synthetic organic blend, the organics okay. in it being the seaweed, the blood meal, all these things, and then having, uh, um, uh, you know, the synthetic base of it, too. So we have per it's perfect for veg and a bloom when you got the triple 16, which is a 1-1-1 ratio of NPK, and then you got the 4-26-26, which is like a 1-5-5, which is very similar to the uh, Luc Lucas formula, I believe, is a... One, two. There's not as much nitrogen in the other Seagrow 42626, but most people who are using CalMags, you know, you got to remember that's a 2% calcium in most CalMag formulas. So you got um, two Seagrow two formulations? Two Seagrow formulations. One is like a veg slash transition, and then there's one that's like a bloom. So the 161616 16, 16 is mostly for veg, and people transition that to bloom. A lot of guys that use water solubles out there listening, they're like a triple 20. It's very similar to that same 111 ratio. Right. And then the 42626. You know, is the is the is the bloom formula? You're getting the extra P, you're getting the extra K, and there's still a little bit of nitrogen in there, right? How much uh, how much solution can you like make? Do you know off the top of your head? For example, I'm seeing your guys like five pounder isn't much. It looks like it's 18 bucks or something. I'm just looking online here real quick. How much right. solution does that make when you're watering? And do you know that? I'm kind of curious <laughs> to get the value out of this because without yeah. the water, I'm sure it's damn economical. Is what I'm assuming. Very economical as a base nutrient. And a lot of people I talk to utilize more of their money for uh, amendments, additives that want some more expensive additives. They've got to pull back on some of their base costs. So that's what they're doing. Just to answer that question in two ways. One, you obviously want to target EC for your base nutrient whenever you're feeding. So a lot of people say you want 60% of your feed to be base. So if I want 1,000 PPMs, I want 600 PPMs in my base. Um, Typically, they say you can put a pound in like 100 gallons, which breaks down to being a teaspoon a gallon. That'll raise your EC or your PPMs about 400 parts per million, right? Right. So if you look at it that way, a pound in 100 gallons, you're getting 500 gallons of solution out of your five-pound bag. 
Yeah, that's pretty pretty damn economical. Yeah. Right. Now, of awesome. course, when you want to feed them a little bit heavier, you're going to increase that by maybe a teaspoon and a half. But again, it's going from 500, not half of it. It's going to be, uh, you know, maybe down to three, 330 gallons once you like start to kick it up. And again, when you're in veg, you don't, you know, need as much either. You're using a lot less. So, you know, we typically say a 25 pound bag of it treats 2,500 gallons, but, um, a lot of guys sometimes, too, depending on their media, will hit it intermittent feed. They'll just feed it a little bit heavier and then uh, just kind of let it work. Of course, you know, anybody that's doing peat or sunshine or cocoa mixes can kind of get away with it because those organic elements in Seagrow can break down much easier. But I got guys that grow in rock wool. I know one of your listeners pretty well that does talk to me a lot that uses rock wool, and he uses Seagrow as his base, you know, and he uses, I think, a quarter teaspoon initially or half a teaspoon per gallon i gotta look at his feed how it works exactly but then he kind of ramps it up from there as well and that's all he uses for base and in rockwell he says it's, it works he hasn't had anything work better let me ask you a couple of quick i don't know i guess i'll call them industry questions if you don't want to answer that's cool whatever as far as i'm assuming grow more is out in cali i mean you guys are in cali you have probably more product there than anywhere else in the industry on a multitude of levels you know hydroponic agriculture whatever um, mm-hmm. don't see a lot of you in Colorado. I know your bottles, your quartz are more affordable than a lot of things out there. And I also heard through the grapevine that you guys even do some bottling or private labeling or whatever you want to call it for some other nutrient companies, uh, where I, that makes me feel like sometimes when you're buying the $39 bottle of whatever Fulvic or something, you're pretty much paying for like the label artwork and the, you know, because I see your guys' folics pretty damn affair, uh, affordable in comparison. Yeah, so, and then- I'll, I'll answer. I'll answer that in a certain way without throwing anyone under the bus. Um, I don't know of any other nutrient manufacturer in the United States that formulates and bottles everything in 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 house. Meaning that most other nutrient companies have to go to a third party manufacturer. Hence, someone like grow more, not saying we are or aren't, and buy 275-gallon totes that they re-bottle and do it. The reason why Growmore's products are so cheap is because we're limiting the supply chain. If you go and buy uh, a pound of produce from some a, a grower, you're going to obviously get the best price as soon as that guy grabs it from the grower and has to go sell it to a distributor or someone else bigger, they're adding a point on that or yeah. how much they want to add to their, their, their produce, right? So Definitely. essentially it's the down the line. You're just getting taxed for these companies that are basically getting it from Growmore and, you know, not necessarily a company like Growmore. I just said that in jest. But, you know, so, yeah, that's the reason why the price is so cheap. People think, oh, well, it's got to be less quality. It's like, no, our supply chain is limited. When we buy uh, uh, a rail car full of urea and monopotassium phosphate, uh, yeah, our pricing is going to be pretty good. And so when we make our product and sell to a distributor like Sunlight or Hydrofarm or BWGS, they're starting point for where they have to add their price to the dealer and then to the end user is just much less. So when they want a 35% margin and then they get a 50% margin that the dealer gets to the end user, of course, the discount wipes a lot of that out when you are an end user. But that's the reason why the products are so cheap, not because we use crappy raw materials, not because of anything else. And you said it, dude, these companies have a large marketing budget. They advertise heavily in maximum yield and a lot of other venues. They have a lot of money into their websites. They have a lot of sales reps across the country. That stuff all costs money. So, of course, they got to charge a premium and they got to get their margin. So, 
hence their products being more expensive. You know, what's inside the bottle and inside the bag normally isn't really that costly. It's just everything that goes on about it. And again, to survive in this in this industry and market, you know, businesses have to do that and get the margin they need to survive. At Growmore, our margin is what we need to get to, you know, survive. And we've been around for almost 100 years coming up in two more years, 100-year anniversary. So right. pretty sure we're not going anywhere either. You guys are getting some good rain out there here. My parents live up in the Central Valley area, and it sounds like the whole state's going to get some action out there. Oh, we're getting dumped on tomorrow and next week. Yeah, you know, your parents being in the Central Valley, this drought's been exacerbated for hydroponic food production because, you know, I got guys that are growing almonds in the Central Valley where you get 4,000 pounds an acre compared to up in the Chico area by Sierra Nevada Brewery, best brewery out there, uh, you know, where they're getting 2,500 at most pounds an acre. The problem is they have no water in the Central Valley to actually feed these trees. So there's guys pulling up 20-acre almond orchards that, you know, they're just literally pulling out of the ground you know millions of dollars and it's just really unfortunate about how this drought's really uh, really affected you know nut prices and, and and produce in general which is why i think now you know i'm working with a hydroponic strawberry farm and a lettuce farm and uh uh howlings that does the hydroponics inside there's they started a 30 acre cocoa tomato um greenhouse so i mean there's been more you know um buzz around this hydroponic food production and uh i think that uh until this mega drought that we're having in california kind of subsides uh you gotta you gotta look at it because 75 percent of the produce that's grown for the united states is, is done in, in california and mexico you know baja and, and the sinaloa yeah. region so i haven't stopped thinking about sierra nevada since you said it so the, <laughs> there's, there's summer lagers my summer beer i like special order like cases of their cans of that out here i love it uh, like, yeah, hopefully we can get. Go ahead. No, no, I'm saying I, I, I have a few. Uh, as they say up north of your parents in Kern County, they call them almonds, and uh, south they call them almonds. And I never understood that. And then they said, "Well, you don't call salmon salmon," and I said, "Yeah, but you don't call walnuts walnuts." So you're not really making sense here. But uh, yeah, so there's almonds in Northern California and almonds in the Central Valley, north of Kern County. Um, but again, yeah, you know, back to your whole thing. Um, Growmart does have quality raw materials. We obviously have chemists that are on staff here. My office is right behind the lab. I can hear them coughing as we're doing the interview. Um, you know, we obviously manufacture and formulate everything here ourselves. Um, and, you know, some companies will source raw materials. And not, to give them credit, whoever does either blend for them or how they, they bottle, you know, may buy some raw materials from us. But that only goes to speak of uh, the respect they have for Growmart as a manufacturer and obviously quality formulator. Right. Yeah, Hell yeah. Cool, so man. again, at the end of the day, I think that uh, I think the industry will be changing somewhat, and the price on most things are going to have to come down just because of the uh, the end price of the goods. You know, there'll always be those little boutique brands, but um, I think the door is closing, if not closed, for any new formulators or manufacturers or or nutrient companies that want to come in and and get it. The 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 trend I see now more is is store owners want to make their own store label and brand so they can hold on to margin and you know if they want to buy a CalMag plus from Botanicare and they want to sell it for 40 bucks a gallon they're going to buy it from a formulator like us or someone else and and an ag formulator get it for 10 and then charge their customers 25 and you know hey they're still making money instead of having to discount that CalMag plus you know 10 points over their cost. Do you think there's room cost. for like another if we could do a Jude Gross three part? Probably probably <laughs> <that> out, right? <laughs> Dude bloom, man. Dude bloom. Exactly. Love Word. It. But, uh, I you know, so I guess, 
Go We're going off topic. I'm sorry. So, uh, no, you know, again, hydroponics in general and the fungi, obviously the research shows that the benefits are greatest, um, you know, where there's a little bit, not as much phosphorus. So again, inoculating early on is really important. Um, uh-huh. hey, what's uh, you know, and again, man, I wanted to get you, get you change your tack to trichoderma because there's so trich- much controversy okay, cool. about it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm sure because, uh, you know, there's big companies like BioWorks and whatnot that have, you know, made their living on trichoderma species, man. Um, in, in big ag, I'm saying. Trichoderma is very, very useful and specific strains of it are, are, are absolutely valuable, man. So what's up with it? So trichs. And I put it in the charge. Yeah. So um, because you already, we, we talked about what specific, you know, trichoderma spores are in there. And I, I think trichodermic species in general, we'll just talk a little bit about them. You know, they're free living fungi that are real common in soil and root ecosystems. Again, hydroponics, we're creating our own media. They're not common in these ecosystems that we're creating because we're playing, you know, master of the domain there. So this is all research based you know, information that I get and base my, my opinion on. And so recent discoveries really show that they're opportunistic, opportunistic plant, you know, symbionts as well as being parasites of other fungi. Um, for many years, the ability of these, these fungi to increase the rate of plant growth and development, um, especially their ability to cause the production of more robust roots has really been known. Um, now the really the mechanisms for how these abilities come to, the weight are really just being understood. So trike species, a high level of genetic diversity can produce a wide range of products um, in this commercial and in, 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 uh, hydroponic application. So again, the species specific uh, are, are really important, but you know, they, they produce a lot of, uh, I can't think of the word, Extra, no, it's extracellular proteins, right? And so they're best known to produce enzymes that degrade cellulose and, and chitin. And although they also produce other useful enzymes. But in addition, the different strains produce more than 100 different metabolites that have known antibiotic activity. So they're really building up that, that, that defense system for, for, for pathogens and illness within your plants. Um, Again, we talked about Pythium, Botrytis, Fusarium, Phytophthora, um, the the few specific species that are in recharge, um, they are used as a biological control agent in in ag and in nature against those pathogenic fungi I just talked about. Right. So... um, Putting the warriors in there. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and and I guess uh, certain strains of them are um, are highly, you know, rhizosphere competent. They're they're, they're able to colonize and grow on roots as they develop, you know. Um, And so they can really be added to soil or or seeds even and soaked by by a lot of different methods. So once they come in contact with the rhizosphere, which is why roots and application is so important, they colonize the roots. So... If you use it as a seed treatment, like we have a wettable powder here, and uh, is the recharge a wettable powder or is it granular? No, wettable powder. Yeah, okay, so, perfect. So, so, soluble powder, I should say. Soluble. Yeah, yeah. Well, I call it a wettable powder because, uh, to be truth be told, it's not a hundred. It's not really a soluble. But again, this is just me being a nerd. So the wettable powder, if you're going to use it as a seed treatment, what happens is is they colonize root surfaces even when the roots are below the uh, casing of the seed. It's pretty crazy, right? Um, And they can colonize on the exterior of the shell when the root breaks through. It can can just, you know, connect right on. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, that's so, how these guys are getting such effective. You know, when they use all these inoculants in big ag, for the most part, mm-hmm. from what I've seen, they inoculate the seeds and they, they do you know tens and hundreds of thousands of seeds with a couple pounds of these products, man. It's pretty amazing. But again, the trichoderma doesn't really have an effect or limited application in biocontrol of pathogenic bacteria. And a real quick explanation of that gets back to what I was saying about colonization is that bacteria generally have a faster growth rate and multiply faster than fungi. Right. So you can't, the, 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 bacteria, the pathogenic bacteria is, is, is out populating and out competing whatever the fungal can actually, the, the, you know, the trichoderma can help, can sure. help with. Um, so again, it's really important that understanding a broad spectrum approach to preventing these plant pathogens is supposed to be incorporated. And so both beneficial bacteria and fungi are likely ideal, but you know, um, you, you definitely want to uh, inoculate initially with fungi and then kind of back it up with bacteria. Um, it's just it's just really hard to, uh, to to say exactly when to start inoculating bacteria, but I think if you transplant with the recharge, you're using the treat recharge, you know, starting once you flip and go into flower, maybe starting week two, start inoculating with some of the bacillus spores if you want to do it then, and, and your rhizosphere should be inoculated well enough and colonized well enough with with your, uh, you know, trichoderma and your other beneficial fungal spores. And again, your phosphorus it. levels are low, so. Yeah, I, I use it as soon as I have roots. Yeah, me too, man. It blows up veg, you know, just big leaves, Deep green, a lot of what do they call nitrifying bacteria? Or, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, delivers a lot of nitrogen. I don't know. I, I love it in veg. I, I cut it. I use it from probably I don't know rooted clone all the way to probably week five. I'll start cutting it out at week five. Same as me, man. Yeah. Same, I figure if it's got the mycorrhizae in there, I might as well start using it once I see roots. So I like mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I got. No I mean, problem. Uh, no, hit it, Jake. No, so obviously the, the trichoderma is penetrating the cells of the root system and it, it res- puts a response, triggers a response in the plant that walls off everything else. It like encloses the trichoderma in the cells and prevents it from getting any further into the living root tissue. And so when it triggers this response, the plant's natural defense mechanism is activated and that's when the systemic resistance induced. And we talk about SAR all the time uh, as far as, you know, creating, uh, triggering the plant to put its defense factors, which increase, uh, you know, oil and resin producing glands and a lot of other, um, symbiotic relationships. So, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So although, even though the trichoderma has gained early entry into the plant tissue, it doesn't cause any disease or damage because both the plant and the trike benefit from their symbiotic relationship. Right. And, uh, right. you know, the plant gets protection while the trike receives an ecological niche and food from the plant, because as we know, the root exudates, the sugars, the carbs, all the other things that are, are being shot out by the root system, are obviously being fed simultaneous by the, by the trikes that are inside the root zone. So it's a real interesting, cool, uh, you know, cool stuff cool yeah definitely is man like i said i don't pretend to understand it i just know what works <laughs> well uh, you know obviously they, they, the trichoderma species are going to grow and proliferate best when there's abundant healthy roots so that's why it's important people say oh i just inoc- i just transplant when i inoculate i inoculate when i transplant and then i just kind of let it go because it's it's already attached to the root zone right well obviously they've evolved you know numerous mechanisms to attack other fungi and enhancing plant regrowth so why wouldn't you want to inoculate and create the most diverse microbial population you can in your root system. We have so much control in this environment, as we talked about earlier, control it even more, you know? Um, yeah, I don't think so, you can just inoculate once, man, and get real real big benefit from it, not with all the, the chemical fertilizer we're dumping on there, all the, all the high phosphorus and nitrogen, no way, man. Right. So I guess in, in hydroponic settings, the viability and benefits of the trike... Um, 
you know, they're, the, 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 the trikes are some of the most effective beneficial microbes in hydroponic settings. So, yeah, um, I, yeah, I, I guess there are certain trike species that don't really uh, control or eliminate all these pathogens. Um, but there, you know, there are certain trike species that aren't in, I'll just say this, there, there are certain trike species, there's a couple that aren't in recharge that actually eliminate all pathogens in, in organic and organic media, which you really don't want to put in your system because they just overtake everything. They're like the, you know, Shaquille O'Neal on the basketball court just dominating everything else <laughs> that comes through, just putting their hand above the rim and like, nope, you're not coming in. Right, right. Now nah, you want to yeah. balance, man. Yeah, you definitely want to balance. So, um, yeah, Again, just to conclude, the trikes are really shown across a wider range of studies that I've looked at to be effective biocontrol agents. Um, certain strains of it, uh, the Harzianum, what, what are some of the strains that are in recharge again, just I, for your I, listeners I, to remember? Reci and Harzarium. Yeah, okay, Those so especially... I've only got two and I've got a quarter million of each. <laughs> Not too shabby, but you know specifically the the harzanium are demonstrated to really increase the uptake and concentration of a variety of nutrients. So more specifically, copper, phosphorus, iron, and manganese. You know we were talking about beneficial fungal spores and in general with the phosphorus uptake, but again that specific trike species helps. And so um, uh, I don't know, man. Increased uptake really. Is just improving all other plant uptake mechanisms and all the other metabolism, uh, the metabolites that are going on in there. Yeah. You know, so well, it does make sense, man. It does make sense. Believe it or not, I am following you, Jake. No, so I, I, guess- I gotta tell you, my my sponge is full, man. It's like I just got out of class over here. I mean, well, do you want to talk all- a little bit about trike and cocoa real quick? Um, yeah, you know, oh, I kind of thought can always take more. So well, I guess, you know, inorganic substrates, we'll talk about cocoa, are, are more effectively colonized by bacteria, while organic substrates are more effectively colonized by fungi. So while trichoderma species have been shown to establish and proliferate in a you know, wide range of mediums, colonization um, you know, may be greater in organic mediums such as cocoa core. So when cocoa core and rock wool were compared with, uh, after inoculation with that trichoderma, Oh, Harzianum, it was found that the, what did they find? <laughs> it was found that the colonization was greater in the cocoa while the rock wool contained the highest amount of this uh, Pseudomonas bacteria. And so the Harzianum strains were applied to transplanting to the core and the rock wool. Um, the Fusarium crown and root rot incidence of uh, uh, God, was it greenhouse grown tomatoes was reduced like up to 80% in cocoa core slabs. And I think like 70% rock wool slabs with yield increases of, uh, anywhere between 10 and 37% cocoa and like five and 25% in rock wool. So inoculating your trike in your cocoa actually in real studies, I'm trying to think where the study was done. Sounds like I don't a know. Man. Yeah, university, man. Yeah, I can email you the, the the study if you uh, if you get to me and you want to post the link to it because uh, it was pretty interesting though. And again, all they inoculated with was that specific trichoderma species that's in recharge the you know the harzanium. And again, you talk about that increase in yield and you know um, any materials that are high in lignocellulose are the organic media, straw, wood bark, cocoa fiber. So this really makes cocoa an ideal environment for recharge. But yeah. don't don't let that discredit rock wool because it showed in that study with the greenhouse uh, uh, tomatoes that it still it still helped. Yeah, exactly. So don't let someone turn their nose and say, oh, I just want to run a sterile environment." Well, you can oh, run a sterile man. environment, or you can increase your yield five to twenty five percent. You choose. 
Well spoken, my friend. Well spoken. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, again, last thing I want to touch on, Scotty, is the optimum temperature for tracks, too. Um, a lot of people put chillers in their water because their rooms get really, really hot. Um, and just like any other living thing, uh, the trichoderma species have temperature you know, optimum temperature for rapid colonization and bioactivity. So for right. most of the commonly applied species in one specific to recharge, this is about like 75 to 85 degrees with about 80 degrees being ideal. I so if conditions are too cold, though, the colonization of the trike is going to slow and even cease. If it's too warm, they die back and the trike may be come out, compete is leaving the door open for other forms of microbial species to take hold. Yeah, I think I'm getting them, man. And that's why you can, where I couldn't run deep water culture with no chiller before, with a ton of recharge, I can run, you know, a ton of trichoderma in the mix. I can start run, or I can run a deep water culture system with aeration and circulation, but no chiller. And I can run temperatures into the 80s and still not getting my any kind of, uh, you know, uh, fusarium or any kind of rot. So it's right because amazing. of course the trikes at that point are really colonizing, and it's, it's the environment, the you know, the window that they like to have. Um, so that's the culprit, though. I was always wondering. There, I knew there was something in there that was that was you know keeping the uh, you know the wolves at bay, just to, to, you know, so to speak. And yeah, I think it really is. I'm leaning towards the trichoderma being the real de- determining factor there. You know, a lot of people, too, just so we we were talking a little bit about Pythium before, I think a lot of hydroponic growers attribute that root browning disease to these Pythium waterborne pathogens when really the major, one of the major causes of the root browning is just the root zone oxygen starvation, usually caused by overly warm or waterlogged media. You know, if it's just saturated in water, you know, the, the, there's not enough oxygen traveling through there, and uh, the dissolved right. oxygen saturation point is just is, is too uh, too low for them to do it. So... You know, nutrient salts don't leak into the roots of the plant. Nutrient uptake is an active process which has, you know, relies on a lot of factors, and one of which is, is satisfactory levels of oxygen being available to the roots of the plants. So uh, roots are pumping the nutrients from outside the root to the inside where they're taken up to and transported to the leaves, and this process requires energy, hence photosynthesis, and the roots get their energy from respiration. Respiration requires this energy, which is achieved by burning sugars. Carbohydrates, kelp, fish, uh, molasses-based glucose and fructose sweeteners, not right. the sucralose, sucralose-based uh, sweeteners. I'm not going to, I don't want to name any companies' names, but most of the watery sugar sweetener products are all sucralose-based, right? And unfortunately, the 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 roots and the microbes can't, you know, they have to, they need sucralase to break it down into a usable sugar form for them. So you're creating another step in a plant's short life cycle, and the enzymes just sometimes don't even care. They don't want to want to waste it right so then obviously part of that sugar is made in the leaves by photosynthesis and transported to the 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 roots that's how they get the sugar you know to power those nutrient pumps when it's not supplied by us but again we're controlling the environment we want to supply as much uh, efficient energy burning as as possible instead of laying it all up to the plant um yeah i mean you got to set these things up to when you just can't throw them you know great quality food if the environment isn't right or even the you know like with the oxygenation what you were talking about in the root zone you know it's like somebody you know giving you a, one of those kobe beef steaks while you're choking you know what i mean or, you know what i mean or while, you know your your mouth and nose are duct tape you know good luck man well, you know, we just talked about photosynthesis uh, and made, the sugars are made in the leaves and they're driven down into the root, which is why we talked about those root exudates and those are the roots are shooting those things out when they're brought. But 
unlike sugar, we just we're on the oxygen touch, we're touching on that right now. So unlike sugar, oxygen is not transported from the leaves to the roots, which really means the roots got to get their own oxygen, right? So sure. if the roots can't get sufficient amount of oxygen because of excessively warm water or nutrient or because there isn't enough airspace in the growing media, they're too yeah, tight, you know, their pumping capacity is totally shut off. And the result of this is the plant becomes starved of all that nutrition. So there's a lot of factors that determine dissolved oxygen levels in water. And this is really catered a lot to your DWC growers too. It's, uh, They're always you know, bitching we ignore them, man. So come on, man. This is for you There you go. Man. So I guess, uh, you know, if, if you have, uh, how do I say it? Determining oxygen, dissolved oxygen levels in water is what I'm talking about. So I guess if fresh water can hold, you know, eight parts per million of oxygen at 77 degrees, while at 68 degrees, water can hold as much as nine parts per million of oxygen. So the colder water gets, the more oxygen it can retain. Yes. The warmer water gets the less oxygen it can retain. But if water's too cold, the nutrient uptake and growth rates will be reduced. So there's this fine balance and there's this fine line where you don't want to go, you know, too cold, even though you can get more oxygen in there. Um, and again, you don't want it to be too warm where it's choking out oxygen. So the oxygen content and water temperature are, are, um, are pretty uh, damn uh, important. Posit- positive, correl- positive correlation. So when one goes up, the other one goes up. When one goes down, the other one goes down. Sure. Right? So another negative correlation. In- Sorry. In hydro, I mean, you're keeping your water water uh, cooler. I mean, my my bedroom sitting at 85, you know, all light, which has to make me think my soil is at least probably going to get up to upper 70s or 80 in my black nursery pots where that's party time for the trichoderma, where they're not going to be as, uh, I guess I'm going to say, active in the cooler water, which uh, to me makes me lean. Again, my philosophy is like clean and, and I'm, it's changing every time we talk. But mm-hmm. in hydro, it's clean and sterile. In soil, soilless, it's like dirty and active. I'm trying but, to get uh, to him, Jake. I'm trying to get to him, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I got a guy that runs uh, four by eight tables. He's in an environment where he can't go in and out of his grow facility very easily and bring in a bunch of new media. His waste, he can't bring in out, you know, trash bags of uh, cocoa or rock wool. So his system is an ebb and flow, and he actually grows in hydrogen trays. Fills up the whole tray with hydrogen. Has these netty pots that are filled with uh, uh, some. We're, we're, we're experimenting with cocoa and certain size Grodan um, just to keep it a little bit smaller. Uh, some of the smaller Grodan, not the large Hugo uh, cubes or slabs. And essentially, you know, that's a media where you would think, okay, there's lots of oxygen. There's a lot of stuff going on. The reservoir, it's ebb and flow. There's plenty of, uh, of things. Uh, he, he seems to think, oh, it's a sterile environment. I don't have any reason to use the, a wettable powder form of mycorrhiza. You know, granular obviously won't work unless I just transplant it when it's a cut into this cube and maybe get it there. And I told him, I'm like, you couldn't be more wrong. You know, um, of course, with he's having the same thing. It's the same, it's the root rot issues that are going on. He's got lots of oxygen in his water because obviously his media allows that too. And with the ebb and flow feeding three times a day, there's plenty of water movement. Yeah. He's got air stones in circulation. Temperatures are a little warm, and uh, you know, I think with the pumps and everything that goes in there, uh, and not inoculating, he's 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 missing this key this this key factor. And this is a this is a larger uh, a larger operation, you know, with thirty lights, and so you know the the, hey man, the environment is dialed in like nice. That, but man. maybe his granddaddy grew like that. His granddaddy, <laughs> I think it was his buddy back in NY. Yeah, but it's but, the uh, same thing, man. That's a, you know, it's it's uh, you know human nature, man, to do what you're comfortable yeah. with and to do what used to work in the past. 
you know, I got to say though, we got to talk a little bit about, we just talked about uh, oxygen content, something really key that I just thought about um, thinking of this guy. He had pH issues. Um, and which brings me to optimum pH for trikes. You know, uh, people think, oh, you know, these certain fungal spores, they like a certain pH. You know, in, in, in ag, we've studied a little bit and shown that, you know, whether you watered in a 9.0 solution or a 5.0 solution, there's certain um, endo and ecto mycorrhizal spores created in an environment in the root zone to make it like 6.8. That's just what they liked, and that's where I was trying to get to earlier, where when you use these inoculants, you can actually create a media that's, that's more stable across. So whether you use these mycorrhizal spores in soil or cocoa or you know even rock will in the wettable powder form when you when you transplant you know they're they're creating an environment that's best suited for them to to survive and thrive but when you talk about trikes optimum ph um well, trichoderma fungi in general vary between species for optimum pH, but most fungi thrive in semi-acidic conditions. Again, 7.0 is basic, hence 6.8 being somewhat acidic. Um, the, the cellulase um, production by trich, you know, harzanaeum, which we keep, I keep bringing this up just because it really relates to recharge, is really demonstrated at pHs of like 5.2 to 6.2 with 5.5 5 being the ideal. Once you get over 6.0, it reduces that cellulase production and Therefore, it's advisable from my perspective and anyone that I've ever talked to that the optimum pH for trikes and hydro is like 5.6 to, you know, 5.9. I would say 5.5 five to 6.0. So some guys say, no, nah, keep it at 5.8. Some dudes do it at 5.6. But really, 5.5 five, five, five to 6.0 so, um, is an optimum pH for the trikes. Whether your media is that or your solution, you know, you could water in your solution at a, I know guys that um, have their cocoa and smart pots, they water in at like uh you know, maybe 6.0, but when they get test their runoff, it's coming out at like a 5.5. You know, hey, that's a great environment for your trikes. The other yeah. guys will water in at 5.5. They test their runoff, it's at 6.5. You know, so you really just got to focus more on the pH of your media, not really of your water. And that's, again, where we talk about these trichoderma and other species microbes are all colonizing your, your media. They're not colonizing in your water. Right. So uh, don't focus so much on the pH of your water. It's really important to test your runoff. And, and, and or, uh, you know, Blue Lab makes a, a great soil pen meter that you can use in cocoa too. Um, so a lot of guys uh, can utilize that to really find out what the pH of their media is besides just using runoff as the only indicator because that's yeah. not a true, you know, indicator of it. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to getting one of those Blue Lab probes, man. I was in a yeah, you know, a if you have those ago and saw that they had they have a one that you just can stick straight in the soil, man. So exactly, it's that plastic stick. Yeah, are you and you can detach now? that. Huh? Scott, Scotty used to say that he now you're going to start pH in that. You weren't really too concerned with pH, figuring that you know your soil microbiology is doing a lot of the work for you. But from what we're hearing from Jacob, we want to keep it you know somewhat dialed in. But he's saying you, you do, wanna, you do. Yeah, you want to have it somewhere between five, you know, five and a half and six is what I'm getting. Yeah, and five and a half to six is for trichoderma species specifically, right? We're not talking about. Uh, mycorrhizal uh, fungals. We're not talking about bacillus or anything right. else, right? We're just talking about trikes. So people that are using okay. recharge initially on, it's it should be important to keep your your media pH around that for an optimum you know production and uh, you know cellulase benefit. So we're talking about enzymes again, you know, which ties into to the biocozyme and other products. If you're using an enzymatic formula, this again is really helpful for for that. And that's why typically enzymatic formulas are are more acidic than not because of their uh, you know, in an, an ideal environment for the enzymes that are floating around in the solution. Yeah. Um, What's the best overall pH? That's what I want to know because I'm using all everything you mentioned at the same time. I think you want pH to float, man. 
I, you kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus too much on like what's your ideal pH because then I, I tell a guy, well, I really like it to be just six It's real basic. It's in the middle, six point three. You're fine. Some guys in soil say, oh, you know, I put mine at like six five. That's fine. Uh, again, it's going to fluctuate through throughout time. And, and to be honest, based on certain feeds, if you follow the feed chart and you were to use uh, a pH neutral of seven point zero water and did the feed throughout the weeks, your pH is going to change based on the products you're using, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that's what's happening to me. I created the little, you know, the lucky perfect storm of everything that, so so my recharge just, I kind of happened into where it works awesome. I use cocoa. I use a bit of synthetic nutrient that, that lowers my pH, not, you know, just with the combination of the water and the nutrient that I'm using, where, mm-hmm. you know, I've got a 5.5 five to 6.0 pH range in my, in my cocoa. And that's why I'm jumping up and down swearing this stuff works you can do anything it works you know because i've got that perfect uh, environment in my soil i mean i couldn't agree with i agree with everything you just said really and and again getting back to not getting too hung up on it like uh scotty said the ebb and flow of your ph as your your plants kind of move on is great but ultimately if you can keep it around 6.0 whether it be 5.8 whether it be 6.3 you know try to keep it there but again the beneficials if you are inoculating don't be surprised if your ph fluctuates in your media regardless of how what ph you're watering it at you know and again they're creating the environment and they're getting cozy you know they're moving in their apartment and they're just they're they're getting settled so you know don't 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 hem up on it too much but i think if you're growing in soil you don't want to go over six eight obviously if you're growing in cocoa or rock wool you know try to shoot for watering in at 6.0 and no matter what anything else is doing most nutrients are going to be available at that ph and uh yeah i'm just kind of it makes good sense i don't want to get too hemmed up but uh yeah guys i hope that was a i hope that was um comprehensive enough and not too oh yeah too much it was badass man i'm glad i got these things recorded man that's what i always tell tell folks man you'll be listening to this one two or three times as a matter of fact your last couple interviews man the last couple dropping sciences are among the uh, most listened to episodes that we have and it's probably because the serious folks go back and listen to it three or four times yeah make sure you're getting all the finer <laughs> make points sure you get it man absolutely man well thanks I'm for just glad you guys are trying to educate everybody you know ultimately there's so much misinformation out there and uh it's just you know, I obviously deal with something where I'm a one-man army, obviously, as our, as our hydro sales rep really here besides my sales administrator. So it's like I'm our only rep, and as we're growing, obviously, I'm going to need a Colorado rep. I'm going to need a Northwest rep. I'm going to need all this stuff and maybe be a sales manager of them. But for right now, you know, stoked about the program we have going. I appreciate your guys' support. Just keep, oh, yeah. uh, you know, my, my goal is to really just now that the baby's been here and the holidays are kind of moving beyond us, just get me on once a week, kind of drop a little science here, drop a little science there, drop a little you know, a bit of this and just kind of keeps people, uh, keep feeding that, that need. And then, uh, you know, we'll kind of create our own little niche here with a certain sort of listenership you guys are kind of after. And then those that aren't really into it are going to be turned on to it. Cause they're like, Oh, there's so much more I need to know, you know? Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah. I'm not so, trying to change people's worldview, man. I'm trying to find people that have the same kind of worldview as we got and, and tell them a story my man. Yeah, for sure. Brother, I love it. We'll let you go. We'll let you get some work done in the office there. And uh, we'll be back, guys, with Dude Grow's show. Uh, see you in a minute. Yeah, all right. Later. Hey there, Would you like to come on a wonderful like trip with me? Where you could be most anything you'd like to be? You'd like to be? Bye. Bye.
science with a uh, jacob from Gromore and scotty how's it how's it growing guys yeah man it's growing well it's growing well short shriveled and to the left <laughs> all right all right <laughs> i think we want to get into a little uh a little i don't know differentiate with you guys uh on your base nutrients um as far as yeah. there's a three part in the sea grow and what do you got scotty Oh, yeah, man. Jake sent us, uh, you just sent us a, a big old party. I'd call it a party pack, but it was a party pallet, man. It just some, <laughs> just about everything they got. And uh, some of the things really interested me were these NPK-based nutrients. I really hadn't gotten my hands on them, at least enough of them to, to really run them. But there's a three-part base, a grow, micro, and bloom base. So I'm super familiar with that. And that's the one that uh, we've got the grow charts, you know, just just follow the charts or, you know, We've at least got some instructions on those. And then there were some pretty cool powders that looked like it might be a pretty efficient way to run my grow or maybe to run my outdoor grow, like a triple 16 C grow. And then there was a flowering formula. I can't remember the numbers on it. But 42626, yeah. Yeah, you know and I mean? I kind of wanted to ask about those because that looked like something simple. I mean, I'm familiar with Grow More from uh, my bamboo farm. You know, we'll buy 25-pound bags of the, you know, the Blue Crystal, you know, triple 16 or something like that and run it. It's a great steak of potatoes for my bamboo. Um, and we're doing it on, on a 20-acre scale. So I'm just trying to get it out there maybe to some of these, you know, I, I know that that uh, we were, Jake and I were working with some outdoor growers that were uh, 
or I shouldn't say working with, but there were some outdoor growers that were calling us for feed schedules, and I know that they were using you know big pallets of of uh, grow more nutrients. So, just kind of interesting. Uh, I'd I'd like to know how to save some money, I guess, using powder. Shipping water never sounds sounds attractive. So, yeah, man, let's get into it. So, what's the difference between the what kind of, I guess first and foremost, man, the performance difference. If you're just going to try to run like a triple sixteen for veg versus a, a grow micro and bloom, I mean, can you expect? You know, we'll take veg because that's an easy one. Similar performance. Yeah, you know, it just really depends on what ratio growers are trying to get out of their base nutrients. So you've probably heard a lot about the Lucas formula when we're talking about a three part. You know, sixteen mils of bloom and eight mils of micro and you know with that ratio the npk liquid solution wise comes out to being about a 5 10 10 so that is a roughly you know lowest common denominator is a 1 2 2 so you got one part nitrogen two part phosphorus two part potassium um you know there's other guys i know that like to run the micro and bloom equal parts they just don't even use the grow, and that comes out to a five-five-five, which is a one-one-one ratio. Yeah, that's so what I, I remember the Lucas band. Yeah, the the Lucas and cocoa is nine mils of bloom and six mils micro. Um, some guys have said that it, the grow when they use it um, in the beginning stages of flowering imparts a funny taste uh, into their flowers. Um, other people have said, you know, oh, I just it's one less thing for me to have to mix. You know, the arguments go on for to each his own. I mean, the, at the end of the day, base nutrients across the board are pretty much going to work. So if you're looking at that Seagrow 16, triple 16, like you're mentioning, that's a one, one, one ratio, which is simple. If, if you're using it, something like uh, a micro and a bloom in, in combination, the challenge with using Seagrow as a standalone base nutrient compared to the three part is that there's not any calcium in it, right? So as long as you're going to be supplementing with calcium, the micronutrient profile in the Seagrow is pretty comparable to what would be in the base nutrient. And again, at the end of the day, Seagrow is used by a lot of outdoor and depot farmers just because they can't run, you know, three-part all the time throughout the whole course of a season or they'd go broke. Yeah, So yeah. You know, the, the powder offers a real value, you know, price plus efficacy. It's really efficient at what it does and getting those elemental parts per million into the plant, and its price point is also there to where it makes sense for a grower. And conversely, when you go to the Seagrill 42626, that's roughly like a 155 ratio. You know, so there's not a lot of nitrogen in that, uh, that formula. So people say, well, you know, I'm using my CalMag, that's got a 2% nitrogen, how much nitrogen is actually being supplied to the plant. There's a whole host of things that kind of go into it. You know, for me, I don't really, you know, I think a lot of base nutrients will will work. The thing that's great about the three-part, it's obviously been developed, you know, a number of years ago, um, university tested, and essentially has just shown and so then, to be go ahead. pretty is effective. That, the three-part, and that's what Scotty asked, I don't know if I followed you all the way through, but I'm really interested in that 16, 16, 16, the C grow. Now, you're saying if you're, a, whatever, a really good green thrum, I don't want to say professional grower, you're going to be able to get, you said, better results, you think, out of the, the three-part? I think you can dial it in a little bit more specifically to a plant with a really short life cycle. So when you're dealing okay. with an indoor plant that's maybe got only eight weeks when you're flowering it and a few weeks in veg, you know, you can definitely utilize that triple 16. The real issue is, and we can talk a little bit about different forms of nitrogen, is that the Seagrow triple 16 has about 10% of its urea based. Now, urea is a great 
nitrogen source. It's got a lot of carbon in it. You know, there's only a few things that tricky regulatory-wise why it can't be registered organic, but it's it's pretty, you know, natural. The problem with urea compared to a nitrate-based nitrogen, which is what's in the three-part or other uh, urea-free powders, as we'll talk about them, right on. is that the urea nitrogen only gets broken down in two ways, mostly, and that's by microbial activity, ambient activity through your microorganisms. So if you're using a lot of recharge, you're not going to have a problem with that as much, and also ground and air temperatures. So if you're in a really cold environment or you have your grow room and it's really cool, you like to keep it really cool all the time, you know, the urea is not going to really be broken down. So the available nitrogen to your plant in a really short three-week period where you're really trying to pump it up and get its vertical height and its veg going may not be ideal. But for guys that are outside that have a little bit more time to wait, um, you know, that can work pretty well from them. Again, using a CalMag, a 2% nitrate-based source, you can maybe get away with how much nitrogen's in there. Um, The real thing that you don't want to happen is for that urea not to get broken down. And let's say you're running soil or cocoa. Uh, Cocoa, not so much as soil, but if you're running soil and you're running the urea-based powder and you, you know, you're just not getting that veg results that you want. And then as you get into flowering, let's say it warms up or you start using a lot more teas and oh, then shit, it activates all that urea. Exactly. And then <laughs> all this action at once. So again, when we talk about hydroponic, we have hydroponic powders here at, at Grill More and, and, and companies make them in general. And they're typically in this industry, all urea free for the indoor market. So when you you know you want to try to avoid the urea, but again, dude, if you have mother plants, the triple sixteen Seagro is a great product, right? Well, I'm sure. just trying to get around the. I mean, my brain's afraid of you know. I think a powdery looking that's like Miracle Grow or bad or bad stuff, and I I don't like the waste with the water either, and I like things uh, pretty easy. I noticed what's organoprotein from nitrogen? Is that the urea I saw on this? Uh, manufacturer's analysis, and I didn't know what organo-protein from the form of nitrogen is. You got me, because there's really only four forms of nitrogen. Sometimes you can get nitrogen sources from amino acids. Uh, it's how they're sometimes extracted from the hydrolysis process. So typically when you have amino acids, you normally have nitrogens associated with them, so maybe they could be trying to refer to that. But normally, you know, in the chemical world, there's only four types of nitrogen besides ammonium nitrate, uh, uh, ammoniacal, you've got, you know, your urea. So um, I, I don't really know what what uh, what they'd be referring to. Sometimes you'll refer to water soluble uh, water soluble organic nitrogen. Okay. Um, so if you have any product uh, things incorporated, like in the sea grill, I believe there's the blood meal. Okay. So you know, again, that's an organic form of of nitrogen, and you know, you, that's probably the guaranteed analysis more coming from that. Again, that blood meal, just like anybody that knows how making super soil and whatnot, that's not 100% available to the plant um, right then either. That nitrogen has got to be broken down as well. So sometimes you'll see on, on a label it has water-soluble, uh, insoluble organic-based nitrogen, and that's typically coming from some sort of amendment that's blended in with it. Now, what about you were talking earlier about a is it dry sprayer or something as far as spray dryer? Yeah, what the heck is a spray dryer when you're dealing with a, these type of dry nutrients? Well, typically the different forms of uh, chelated micronutrients that we incorporate into all of our blends um, all are based in liquid reactors. They're made so you know you have an iron EDDHA, DTPA, the like, what have you. Um, you know, you're creating that in a reactor and you're making a 
chemical uh, liquid of that. Well, again, you talk about shipping the big killer, and so a lot of times with these powders, just like with liquid, you know, you're able to store a lot more. If you have a 275-gallon drum that you can create into a 50-pound bag, you know, ultimately you're going to be saving money on so many yeah. levels. So for farmers, uh, essentially, we have one of four spray jars in the state of California. You know, it's something typical that most consumers would use, and we mentioned this is a uh, powdered milk, you know, so you take the liquid milk and you run it through the spray dryer and that's how you, you, you know, it's after it's been pasteurized and it's sanitized and it's uh, run through it that way. So there's different applications for it. I mean, in the food industry, they'll use spray dryers for old crops of strawberries to, you know, the the, the grade twos that didn't really make the cut for the market. Right. They'll incorporate those into powders that they'll put into like oatmeal or whatnot. So they'll run that through the, the, the thing and then oh, they'll sure. do it that way. You're so great. You're I, had, I had some spray-dried strawberries this morning, man. They were delicious. <laughs> there you go. From your special K, you're watching your figure. <laughs> right. There you go. Hey, man, Jake, tell me how to read a label, man. I go into these stores and, and you know, I know a little bit about it, but I, I really can't even read, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to discern the difference between all these sources. You know, how do you know when people are cutting corners? How do you know what, what is a true premium uh, base nutrient? Can you give us any kind of uh, things to look for or rules of thumb? Well, you know, typically when you look at sulfates, so when you say, hey, I have a... Uh, you know, a potassium sulfate or uh, magnesium sulfate or a ferrous sulfate. You know, typically the sulfates are the cheaper sources of the material, the parent material. And I would say cheaper from a manufacturer's perspective and also cheaper for your plants. They're not as effective because they're not as available. When you talk about different kind of chelates, as we just were mentioning, whether it's an EDTA, uh, various, it's an EDTA calcium or an EDTA. Now, now we, we see that EDTA all the time. The EDTA is a natural chelator, a synthetic chelator. Tell us about that. Well, that's just a chemical chelate that form it's used. You know, so for iron, example, there's three different kinds of chelates that are uh, incorporated when it's being isolated, EDTA, DTPA, and EDDHA. And if you ask me to try to pronounce that, I'm going to tell you to <laughs> no. go yourself. Which one's no, the one just, we need to be looking for? Which one's the one we need to stay away from? That's all I want to know. Well, you know, ultimately, when you see any kind of chelated micronutrient on a label that's got a EDTA beside it, that's pretty, you know, that, that, that's the upper end as opposed to a sulfate-based source. Um, again, when you start to get into the DTPAs and EDDHAs of iron, you talk about availability. So these, these micronutrients that are chelated have, you know, an availability range based on pH. So iron EDTA is really you know, only available on a pH range of less than, I don't know, uh, six, some people say six, eight, but, you know, um, it's a little different. Some people say it's stable, you know, only at pH is below 6.0. So let's just use the 6.0 barometer because there's a lot of arguments sure. about it. People say useful up in soil up to seven, but it can't, you know, once it starts being available. So obviously we're dealing with hydro. Um, you know, we have pHs in soil and stuff that drift naturally up above that. Some guys like to keep their cocoa at 6.3, 6.2. So what's happening is, is this iron EDTA is not available to your, your plants based on the specific chelate that's going on. So um, what's happening is, is you have to step it up to the DTPA. Now, the DTPA iron is available in a pH up to about 7.8 or 8, right? So once you get to the EDDHA or the most expensive chelate, 
then it's available across all pH range. Man, is there going to be a test on this later? <laughs> Dear God. It's like, I'm like, so, no. <laughs> here's what, do we have to fear? So when we look and say, you know, uh, it has EDTA or it's EDTA chelate, is that something we need to worry about? Is that, is that, that a symbol of no, quality? No, that's obviously, a, that's more of a, a, a beneficial, um, that's, that's a real beneficial um, thing. And so, you know, here, based in California where we're manufacturing, you know, we're getting, uh, you know, food-grade EDTA, and they use it in, in vitamins, too, to stabilize the vitamin content and, yeah, I and, see and it a lot color fading and, and soft drink beverages. You know, so, I mean, these are all like a reaction to metal ions within uh, within the search. And, you know, when we're talking about chelating agents, we're talking about big chemical companies, multi, multi, multi-billion, Fortune 50, Dow, BASF. Sure. Um, you know, th- this, this we're, we're playing with the, the big boys in that one. Um yeah. Okay. So, and and that's so you say we uh, the rules I'm trying to extract from this, so we can pull out sulfates. And any time we see sulfates, we should kind of uh, scratch our head a little bit there. Um, and so, when we're looking for nitrogen sources, some of the best nitrogen sources are. Tell us about those. Well, it just depends on what kind of product you're using. So, if let's say you're trying you know, to, and our uh, base nutrient. Some people, yeah, in a base nutrient, most, most nitrogen sources are going to be, you know, from like in the micro, the 5% nitrogen we're seeing is mm-hmm. mostly from calcium nitrate. So obviously the calcium content 5% in a micro blend, our micro blend at least, I think it's very similar in the other two main competitors that we're pretty much carbon copies of. Right. Um, so that's like, you know, you're getting most of your nitrogen, your nitrate source from the calcium nitrate that's incorporated into the blend. Um, you know, on the 054 bloom, you know, we're looking at, you know, different potassium sources. So there may be some that have potassium sulfate. There may be some that are monopotassium phosphate. Um, yeah, I'll see that one a lot. A lot of the yeah. You want to you want to try to avoid the ammonia, you know, the, uh, you know, monoammonium phosphate, MAP, right? Um, that's a cheaper source. You're trying to avoid the heavy metals inside your, your, your plant material. You know, again, you talk about fertilizer and food-grade raw materials. Um, people that are growing, um, they have a flower farm that they're providing for Lowe's or a cit- uh, not a citrus, but like a you know ornamental you know right. all visual. Point you know, they can use that all the mono you know the ammonium uh, that they want because those heavy metals doesn't really matter in the end of the day because it's just for looks. It's not for being consumed. So okay. Yeah, so we're just trying to look for hopefully food grade materials and avoiding, you know, ammonium based uh, products is good. You know, there's a little bit of research out there though about ammonium nitrate and how a certain percentage of that as your nitrogen source when using hydroponics actually helps buffer your media, and so your pH doesn't drift as much within your media when uh, when you use it. So that was I think it came out. Uh, hydroponic study done with strawberries in Japan, you know, and they, they kind of dialed in the different percentages of nitrogen sources and they, they used different levels of ammonium nitrate in the study to kind of show what the pH did. And I think they found the sweet spot was about like 20% or something around that. Hmm. So it's not all bad in all, in all forms, but you just kind of have to be careful. Do all base nutrients have calcium in there? I know that calcium really is, you know, used on a on a macro level in in, in you know growing our favorite plants. Do all base nutrients have to have calcium in there? Is it, is it a requirement to to be a, a, a requirement base? for our industry? You know, um, whether you have a one part, a two part, or a three part, they all have calcium in it. The problem with calcium in solution, why you normally see a two part, is because calcium and phosphorus don't blend. 
you know, they fall out of solution. They're not suspended together. They're not soluble. They're insoluble when they create a mix together. So what happens is <coughs> you have all your calcium in the three part and your micro, you know, which is a 501, hence zero phosphorus. When you have a two part, um, I don't have any in mind. Um, let's say it's a, you know, a two, four, three, and then there'll be like a one, zero, four. The calcium's always going to be in the solution with the zero percent. Now, I know you guys had the guy from Dynagirl on before, and we've formulated something very similar um, to what's out kind of in the market. You know, we've we found that we can make a one-part nutrient solution that's maybe a 666, but the problem is is you can't get more than 2% calcium suspended in solution, and you have to be really careful about the temperature, too. If it gets too cold, it can precipitate, or which is the equivalent of, we call it falling out of solution, creating ice cube floaty jug in the jug. Um, so ultimately when you deal with a one part, you got to be real careful because most likely you're sacrificing your levels of calcium because of just basic chemistry. It just can't be suspended in solution. So you just got to watch it. Hey, how come they the never put part, any... Though, everybody has it in there. How come nobody ever adds silica to a base nutrient? Is that one of those things also where it's going to make something else, you know, it doesn't, doesn't go well with something else? Yeah, you have to be careful with using... Uh, uh, potassium silicate products just because the general nature of K, I mean, you look at KOH, potassium hydroxide, most potassium sources are highly alkaline. So when you use pH up from any company, most likely the sources, um, most likely there are a few that don't utilize it, but uh, potassium hydroxide, right? That's just what they're doing. They get caustic potash, it's called in like the trade name. Right. Comes in a certain concentration, you dilute it down, and so it's not... Com- completely hazardous and, <laughs> right. and you use it to raise your pH. Well, you got to think most solutions for the base nutrient are pretty acidic in solution, you know? So you're dealing with uh, pretty volatile reactions you can get when you incorporate silica into a base nutrient in a, what we call a stock solution. Stock being like, you know, the uh, full strength, not diluted at all solution, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think any, any silica that could be incorporated would be negligible and, and not really beneficial. A lot of the hydroponic food production facilities that do cucumbers or tomatoes where they have like the, really want the turgidity of their leaves and their stalks and their flesh on their, their fruit to be um, really there. They're using um, about 100 ppms, anywhere from like 50 to 100 ppms of silica. You know, um, yeah, it's about what we use. Yeah, it just gets a little tricky because you think about it when you use a silica like the armor coat we have, which is seven and a half percent silica from a monosilicic acid and potassium silica blend. People love there's three percent fo- uh, potassium in there, right? So when you put in, let's just say five mils, this is totally off, and I'm not even exactly sure what the the real ratio is right now off the top of my head. But let's just say you put in five mils of your potassium, uh, I mean your silica, and it raises your PPMs by a hundred. Also, it's going to raise your pH probably by like two whole values, but that's not what's standing right now. Right. You think, oh, okay, great. Well, I've got 100 ppm's of silica in there. Well, you really don't because there's obviously a, third, a certain percentage of potassium that's in there. So you may have, you know, 60 parts per million of potassium and 40 parts per million of silica in that 100 ppm's. Oh, so, gotcha. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I I think uh, I was talking to a DWC grower today and, you know, he uses his silica at about two and a half mils all the way through of our armor coat. And I kind of thought he could kick it up to four mils. He was having a little bit of pH drift. He uses a 
group of products from a number of manufacturers. And I thought that was one way to help stabilize it because it was drifting down with the possibly increase the use of the silicate. So, you know, certain guys say, oh, should I use my silica first and mix it? Should I agitate it separately? And then yeah, add next it? question, yeah. Uh, you know, I think the jury's kind of out on that. It just seems like like it'll turn the uh, the res cloudy if you put it. I wonder, you know, the word precipitate comes up again to where I'm saying. Well, that's just that's that's the reaction that's happening, and I don't think it's actually precipitating out. It's just uh, like it's going to do it even if you had it in tap water and did it too. So most likely, what's you know the reasoning is is you're just seeing a highly alkaline solution reacting with an acidic solution. That's not saying it's not mixing or blending, but uh, you know it's just. Uh, I don't know, to each his own on that. So people say, oh, I just use it as, a, uh, you know, my pH up, you know. Um, sure. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think there's anything really wrong with that as long as you're not using too much of it. But no, I like to start the res out with, you know, five mils per gallon of, uh, of the armor coat. And, yeah, then, then I'll put my A and B base in there. But I usually wait. I'll, I'll wait a nice long time and let it really you know, mix up and, uh, and homogenize. Now you said before a, I put the A and the B in. The A and the B, which got me, I was wondering why. Do you see advantages or disadvantages? I know you guys don't have a two-part. And uh, as far as, I, I, I always thought if you have a three-part and you really know what you're doing, you're going to be able to work with different varieties and of the plant and you know be able to dial it in. I personally use a two-part myself that's kind of organic base. I've been kicking around either Soul Synthetics or BioThrive series from GH and um, I mean, what do you see a difference in that? Like, if I wanted to switch from those products I just mentioned over to the the Seagro as a one part, or like I said, the I, I haven't used a three part in a while because I kind of just looked at it as against my growing style. But maybe the three part with organic or natural additives would be the way to go. Um, I mean, what advantage do you have with the three part versus two part nutrient? Um, again, I think the ability because most two part nutrients, in my opinion. The ones I've seen are a lot of them are kind of uh, diluted when it comes to, I feel like the two-part nutrient game is um, a lot of people like to go heavy on a certain additives. And so what happens when you use a three-part is it, it does increase your PPMs quite a bit. So people think, well, if I'm using this three-part or let's just say I'm using micro and bloom even, because I think micro and bloom is, we can call it a two-part because at a certain point throughout flowering, you're just using micro and bloom. Sure. Right. Uh, midway through at week four through nine, let's say you're only using it at who knows what specific growers are using. So I mean, you look at it. Okay, well they're using a two part there. Um, you know the zero five four and the five zero one with a micro complex that's in there and the five percent calcium, and that's more than everybody else's that's out there. I mean, if you look at uh, you know this isn't throwing anyone on the bus. It's just saying look at the base because again, it's, it's, it's a heavy additive. Thing. You know, you look at House and Gardens, you look at certain, uh, uh, the old two-part from Botanicare, you look at even Flora Duo, you look at the SBA and SBB, which is a popular bloom uh, yeah. two-part in Southern California specifically. Um, you know, you look at the Sensi bloom, um, you know, these are, they're kind of, I wouldn't say weak, but I think that they have less in them because their marketing scheme is to focus on the other additives they have that are trying to get you micronutrients that possibly are pretty much already in the three-part. And you'd use the three-part in, in almost like even uh, medias I've been using now or peat cocoa mixes kind of. Vital Earth has a mana mix. There's a cocoa loco from Fox Farm I haven't been crazy happy with. But regardless, 
um, fine. I mean, I, I, my brain's always like, well, I'm growing in a soil mix, so let me use more of a like a soil nutrient. Where I've always looked at the three part the way I grew up in hydro and behind the counter, etc. Is GH three part that was for your hydroponic systems. If you want to grow in, you know, more of a soil mix or something, I'm going to try and get you into something else. But that's not necessarily true. Well, you got to think when you're dealing with the soil colloids, and there's a huge reaction that goes on in the you know, the rhizosphere of the plant in a soil media compared to something that's a little more inert, like cocoa or in a water-based, uh, you know, DWC, that's an 8-inch neti pots with hydrotin or rock wool cubes or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, uh, again, what's happening is, is even in cocoa, let's just compare cocoa to soil because I think that's a lot of people are, are, you know, pretty much on. You know, when you look at uh, the cocoa and the way that the cation exchange capacity, the CEC, right, that goes on within the, the plant and the micronutrients and the macronutrients that you're feeding it uh, are doing things a little bit differently in soil than they're going in cocoa, right? So, if you know, you flush your cocoa out, um, you know, two good flushes, you're pretty much, your mix is cleaned out. There's nothing really left to grab onto. When you're using soil, you can flush it out for probably a week, two weeks straight, and there's still little elements that are left. And then the the plant also, because it knows it's in soil with the microorganism activity that's going on, most likely due to the, either the organics that are in the soil mixes that are bought outside, you're incorporating teas, or you're, you're, you're inoculating with beneficials like recharge and whatnot. Um, the plant actually kicks up its root, what we call exudates, and the, the plant's actually, the roots are shooting out these carb sources and food for the microorganisms to feed that in turn are creating the soil environment and pushing back more food up into the plant. So it's this interesting cycle that is happening inside a soil media as opposed to a cocoa one or even more so in the rock wool or a DWC setup. Okay. So I think that when you're using more organic-based or urea-based nitrogen in, in a soil mix, um, or even cocoa to a little bit more of a, a lesser degree, um, yeah, you're definitely creating the environment in your soil where the transferring of the, the cation exchange capacity is going on and in the media that's beneficial to your plant. I know it's kind of like not really what you're asking, but... Um, it's all good, man. It's it's yeah. all knowledge, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, ultimately, if you got soil, that's why they tell you to cut your newts back. You know, if you look at a recirculating res system and you look at a drain to waste that's a soil-based feed schedule, most likely your parts per million every week are going to be a few hundred less. And that's only because these the feeds that you're using in your hydro system are kind of going in and out and they're flushed. So whatever you gave it, it's done. But True. the salts are the salts and the nutrients are building up in your soil over time. And uh, essentially, if you were to nuke them and hit them that hard, they don't have a chance to flush themselves out with all the things that are going on in the root system with your microorganisms. You know, it's like a longer process for these things to happen, so to speak, and it doesn't get cleaned out as easily. So that's why you'll probably notice on across the board for most manufacturers why their feed schedules are much stronger when you use a, you know, recirculating as opposed to drain to waste. In addition to, sorry, uh, you know, having a res possibly being 200 gallons, you fill it up and some guys say, oh, well, I'm, you know, four days into my week and probably going to have to top off here a little bit. So they like to top off to dilute their mix to kind of get the end of their week a little bit more diluted and kind of that's their flush days as people kind of adhere to and ascribe to more religiously in soil, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. See, I, remember, I, I think I forwarded you a, uh, a deep water culture grower was looking at your grow chart, wondering mm -hmm. what modifications he needs to make on it. So just... 
what dial it really depends down. because you know the, the really challenge is a lot of guys doing dwc setups just build their own and again um depending on how much oxygen is in the water you know there's we talked about it before i think on a previous show the negative relationship between water temperature and available oxygen you know as your oh, water yeah. temps are going up how your uh, your oxygen levels are so i mean ultimately if they can keep their water temp pretty much in the beginning of veg at like, you know, 68, I'll just say, right, all the way through to like getting into week, you know, six, then you really want to dip your water temp, like, shit, I want to say down closer to like, you know, 60, uh, eight degrees and really chill it out towards the end. But a lot of people's environment isn't really able to do that. So yeah, it's like deep water culture. Once you start after buying chillers for every reservoir, man, I'm out, man. I'm out. I did that one time. I had to, in that same system, the current culture, I was um, helping somebody out, and they got root aphids. I'm like, well, let's let's make this really cold for them, and we turned it down to like you said. I think it was 58 or 59 with a big half horsepower chiller, and they started crawling out of the buckets. They're like, <laughs> screw this, man, we can't yeah, hang right. out here anymore. Like, let's it's ruin cold. their party right away. Yeah. Nice, so for man. a system like that, you know, you can't really use any urea-based nitrogen because it's not going to be available to the plant at all, right? Well, not, not in that environment. I mean, now not in that environment, but that's. Not even in that environment, I would say, just in that system in general. So yeah, what I would true, recommend would be to it, use a, your, oh, go for like it, go for uh, it. the Mendocino Producers Choice Bags we have. You know, we have like a 51126, uh, and you can add magnesium sulfate and some CalMag to it and pretty much get the Lucas formula. So if you want to mimic elemental parts per million, what the three-part offers in a powdered form is you can kind of go that way with a 51126, get some magnesium sulfate heptahydrate and incorporate some CalMag or some calcium nitrate, and you can kind of mimic elementally, parts per million-wise, what the three-part offers. Now, one thing we're doing at Grillmore, just to kind of go on this next tangent as the way for at least a lot of guys in Colorado for even indoor shows are going, with they're using a lot of three-part okay. um, and trying to use powdered as the base nutrient right. uh, and then just focusing their money on their additives. Um, we're developing a uh, a new thing up the pipeline, which is kind of going to be the the three part in a powdered form. So, All right. real tricky on that, trying to get it going. It's oh, really what a, hard to create and make a stable solution, but that's kind of what's in the works right now. And I'm liking what you just said, as far as I'm thinking, you know, using like the sea grow and then spending my money on additives. But I also see you guys have. For ridiculously affordable, like the grow more like all-purpose soil builder for like an organic grower, it's a five-five-five. I think it was like four dollars for a box, and you know derived from blood meal, bone meal, kelp meal, fish meal, poultry compost, cottonseed meal, alfalfa, rock phosphate. This is the good stuff. This is what I like to see. Now, is this obviously isn't a soluble nutrient? I'm assuming this is something you could either mix in or top dress with if you're that style of grower. Are you familiar much with that product? Or yeah, yeah, I totally am. So if you're going to make a super soil or something like that, you like to amend your dirt heavy and not feed that much. That's something you would use then. If you want to make a compost tea, you know that's what you want to look for is the NPKs on your different organics, and then ultimately, you know, pick the ratio out. So that's a one-one-one ratio again. Challenges is that 5% nitrogen, 5% potassium, or phosphorus, and 5% potash isn't 100% available. So when you look at a 555 liquid for that's urea free base and whatnot, it's all available to the plant right away. These ones have to be broken down, so exactly what's being taken up is a different story. But, you know, obviously incorporating all these different organic amendments into your blend is just going to create a really nice environment for your microbes. 
Um, so as far as top dressing, you can definitely top dress and water it in. I definitely think, though, that incorporating it into your soil or okay. possibly your cocoa initially would be great. The, and then if you don't and you're already past that, just make a compost tea out of it. Go get a five-gallon bucket, get uh, you know an air pump that is rated for you know four liters. Um, I don't know if, if it's ratings per minute or if it's per... Yeah, I think it is per minute. Yeah, so typically I like to do like one liter per minute for every gallon. So if you're going to do like a five-gallon bucket, fill it up to four because you know it's probably going to foam up. Uh, Get a four-liter pump. Um, You can get a little recirculator one and take the biofilter off just so it's kind of moving around. I don't like the whole stocking, throw my raw dry powder amendments in it because it kind of gets bunched up and I don't feel like it's being suspended in solution. um, I I never throw my rod in the reservoir, man. (laughs) So if you get that kind of going... you know, that's like the best format to do that with. And the same thing with like DWC or guys that are doing like bucket systems with hydrogen or, you know, they use that flock and, uh, uh, Damn, you know, blow it out. Yeah. We're about to, uh, the captain, actually our blogger is a Rockwell flock grower. And we just sent him uh, pretty much a complete line, everything but the powders. We sent him a three part and all the additives. So he's going to, he's going to do a grow, man. He's pretty excited. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I see a lot of, so I know a guy that uses Flock that actually uses the Seagrow as his base nutrient, and he uses the Flock with the triple 16 Seagrow on the 42626 as his base, and he notices no no issues, and I've I've seen his product, and it's great. So, huh. you know, um, I can work on getting the, the feed exactly on what he does on an indoor uh, cycle. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I don't. I don't. The captain seems to have it pretty dialed in with three parts, so I think he's going to be able to to adapt to your three part, no problem. But yeah, in, in the future we can definitely. Uh, he definitely makes things look good. That's for sure. He blows up. Right, and roots. I'm just saying in the sense of what you and dude were asking, like you know, and I'm trying to to say, don't you know, use urea when you have some media like that because it right. won't happen. But apparently, you know, it's not really affecting him. And and again, I think it's kind of negligible too with how short the life cycle is. You know, we're not. We're not beating it, you know, yeah. a, a whole year harvest coming out, you know. And and how much microbes he's using as well. If he's using a bunch of microbes, it's going to make a difference now. Yeah, that's where it's breaking it all down and it's making it usable, exactly. Sure. Hell yeah. All right, man. I think we got enough to stew on for another week, man. <laughs> what do you think, dude? I think so, man. Definitely uh, going to school a little bit and good to hear. I'm just trying to figure out. I'm just about to... Uh, take down here and start a new bloom cycle so what i'm gonna do for base nutrient trying to get something dialed in i think i can do a little better than what i am doing with uh when i'm using the like i said when i'm using the bio thrive series from gh and then I, i'm like well i'm adding a lot of this stuff in and in my additives anyway when i'm using you know mendocino products and so i feel like i just need a more pure base nutrient with micronutrients in there more concentrated, as you said, with the three-part, and then add in my organic natural additives to bring the dank. Yeah, so. hey, wasn't there a rule of thumb you gave, Jake, uh, about the top, like 200 parts per million of additives, you know, or certain percentage of base, certain percentage of additives? I thought you threw one of those out last time. Well, you know, the old school of thought was like 60 to 65% of your PPMs should, overall should be base nutrient, and then the other 40 or 35% of your PPMs available to you that week could be in additives. Okay. Some people say, oh, well, what about when I use my CalMag and it raises at 150, 200 parts per million? You know, I'm kind of more of a proponent of using, you know, CalMag more like on the three mils a gallon side than the five mils a gallon side. But some guys have certain magnesium requirements where they just like that. That's kind of right. the benefit of using my CalMag, too, is because we blend. Uh, most people use magnesium. Uh, 
sulfate and calcium nitrate. Are you talking about the actually, NCAL? The NCAL mag, yeah. We actually react uh, magnesium oxide with nitric acid and create our own magnesium nitrate here. What happens when you get, like, not store-bought, but bag-bought magnesium nitrate, you know, there's a lot of water molecules and wasted energy that's going on when you react it and, and put it in water to make it suspended. So, you know, we're actually creating our own magnesium nitrate here using magnesium oxide and nitric acid and can kind of maneuver the levels to squeeze out as much magnesium as we can. So you'll notice our magnesium levels in our NCALMAG are doubled out of anybody else out there. We got 2%. Some people have emailed me saying, well, I was told that it's a 3-1 three, ratio of calcium magnesium. You know, that's ideal for these plants. And uh, I think that's BS. Some people say, oh, a 5-1, like uh, there's a certain, you know, popular uh, CalMag supplement out there that's 5% calcium, 1% magnesium. And it's like, well, then why are you telling me and all these growers I run into, oh, I'm having to use mag sulfate uh, to, you know, Epsom salts to try to, you know, keep my magnesium up. And I've noticed when I did it, it was great. But when I stopped it, the plants didn't like it. It's like, yeah, because... I think so much there's been some like generational drift in breeding where these plants crave magnesium more than they can get it up. And, uh, you know, so in our, in our three part, you know, I think our bloom has doubled the magnesium of the competitors bloom. And again, our CalMag has doubled the magnesium and at a better price point. So it's like, you want to talk about reading the label, Scotty, look at the percentage of how much is in there and look at the price. And then, uh, you'll make the, the connection pretty quick about what we got going on here. Excellent, man. Excellent. Well, sounds well, good to me, your man. Time, guys. Oh, yeah, thank you, too. man. Appreciate Definitely. it. I feel like we got him to dumb it down. We got Jake to dumb it down today, no? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like it, man. Coming to our level, man. <laughs> is, is it 421 over there, man? What's going on, man? Hold on. <laughs> God oh, damn, my. man. Yeah, right. my Starbucks grande ice cream tea. <laughs> <laughs> my, well, hey, I got my GT over here while you guys are taking your BT. So uh, yeah. they call radio theater of the mind, man. So <laughs> word, hell yeah! Th- thank you so much, Jake. I really appreciate it, brother. We'll be in All touch. Right, man. Thanks for I don't hanging know if we out. We had an outro or not? I'm just like keep talking, thinking. <laughs> Sorry. No, oh, no. Good, we'll officially friend. we'll officially outro it out now and say, guys, we'll be right back. DudeGrows.com. Glad you enjoyed Jacob dropping some science from Grow More. Yeah, and check out the whole line over at realgrowers.com, man. We got everything now, man. True, true that. And yeah, thanks, Jake, again. Thanks, guys. All right. All right. All right.
Dale, dale, dale. 